If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. We'll be in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through uh, 25. This is God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord, before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this means of grace to us. We thank you for being a God who does wonderful signs and wonderful things. And you're also a God, Lord, who gives explanation and reason and words to them. And so, Father, I pray that as we listen and unpack and rightly divide your word, that you will bolster our faith that you will increase our uh, uh, picture of who you are and all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, and that you will make us doers of your word, that we would respond to passages like this, not with our minds simply stretched, but with hearts and hands that endeavor to obey you and enjoy you. So I pray this uh, for Jesus' sake and for his name. Amen. So I want you to think about uh, a family feud. And no, I'm not talking about the game show that's hosted by Steve Harvey. 
Some of you know the show where two families will line up on the opposite side of Steve Harvey and the goal of the game is to uh, answer, to get the most points. There's a survey of 100 people and there's these questions that are asked and the goal of the game is to beat the other point, to to beat the other families, to score more points. That's an external family feud. It's two different families feuding against each other. That's not what I have in mind this morning. When you think about an internal family feud, where siblings fight siblings, and aunts and uncles fight parents, or there's a falling out. I've been pastoring long enough to watch or to have witnessed this on numerous occasions. I've walked with families as someone in the family has passed, and there's no will. And the estate is unsettled, and siblings fight and fall out of fellowship. And it's sad, and it's painful to watch. What's the hardest family feud that you've witnessed? Maybe in a book, or television, or real life. I think that's a backdrop to our passage this morning. There's a long family feud that's been going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. And what we're going to see in this passage is that God the Father turns their feuding into fellowship. He brings about peace and restored relationship. And the question that I want to put before you is, as you think about the church, as you think about your own lives, Where do you see the most brokenness and fracture and lack of peace in the body? Maybe you're a person of color and you struggle to think about this country with respect to race. And in your mind, that's a big deal. Or maybe it's in your own marriage and there's been an offense and there is tension and strife and and you two wonder, can that bridge be repaired? Or maybe it's around politics or whatever it is that's out there right now that, that I see as a pastor. It just, these things can get in there and they can tend to fracture and separate and create hostility and resentment and bitterness inside the family of God. And the question that I want to put before us is, is Jesus big enough to repair what's broken? Is the gospel big enough to turn those who feud and those who fight and those who dislike each other, is the gospel big enough to get in there and to turn enemies into friends? Those who feud into beautiful, godly, Christ-honoring, Jesus-exalting fellowship, can the chasm be repaired? And what we're going to see is, yes. And what God does is he gives us one example, one example from this family feud 
that results in beautiful fellowship. And it's as if God is saying, if I can reconcile you to me through Jesus, and as you are reconciled to me through Jesus, this reconciles these two warring families. Do you think that anything is beyond his ability to heal? It's the backdrop of the passage. So what I want to show you, the way I want to deal with the passage this morning is maybe unpack it as the original audiences would have read this. When they would have looked at this passage and saw Jews and Samaritans in fellowship, they would have been blown away. And I want to unpack it with three points, and then at the end, I'll ask the question, what does this mean for us? So I want to show you a family's painful feuding. That's the first point. Now, for context, Stephen has just been killed. That's the section right before it. And because he's been martyred, a great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And because persecution breaks out in the church, you start to see that they were all scattered. That's, that's the refrain in Acts 8.1. You also see it again in 8.4. And today and next week, we're going to meet this guy named Philip. So next week, Philip's going to share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. He's going to come to faith. This week, he goes into Samaria. Now, a few words about Philip. First, he's one of the seven that was set apart to care for the widows in the early church. Secondly, his lot in life is different than Stephen. Stephen was a martyr. He was set apart and within one chapter, he's off the scene and he outlives his life because everything that we see happening is resting on this persecution. But Philip seems to live a long life. You don't have to turn there, but later in Acts 21, which we think is maybe 20 to 30 years after this, we're told that the Apostle Paul stayed with Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven in the city of Caesarea. So Philip doesn't have a short life. The Lord gives him long life. He wears the title, the evangelist. And so this evangelist goes into Samaria. Here's a picture of Samaria. Uh Uh-oh. There it is. There it is. So here's Jerusalem. And this isn't even 50 miles. I mean, we're talking about they are neighbors. Now, the text says that they went down. Well, technically, they went north to Samaria, but, but down is based on elevation around the city of Jerusalem, which was higher. So even though they went north, they're still called to go down. Thank you, Greg. Now, what do we know about the relationship between the Jews in Jerusalem and those people in Samaria? John Stott says that there is a thousand-year-long family feud. It goes all the way back to David and Solomon, when Solomon's heart seems to have turned from the Lord, and he married multiple women, and he worshiped other idols, One of the things that God promised that the kingdom that had been united around David would now be divided. And that's exactly what happened. The ten northern tribes sided with a king and they withdrew themselves from the twelve. And they became known as the northern kingdom or the kingdom of Israel. And the two southern tribes, 
Judah and Benjamin became known as Judah or the southern kingdom. And so that, that family of 12, the 12 tribes that were united under David began to fracture and began to splinter. And so in 722 in the north, the Assyrians came in. And because the, the, the 10 tribes in the north would not repent at the preaching of Amos, the Lord sends Amos to preach, turn, turn, turn. They would not turn. And so the Lord sends the Assyrian king in there to remove them from his land. And, and back then, they were sinister. What they would do is kill off the strong. They would relocate you to other cities and other countries where you did not know the language, you did not know the culture, you did not know the people. And then what they would do was send their own Assyrian residents back to the land that they just took from you. And that's exactly what he did. And later on, some of those who had been deported from the northern kingdom moved back. And then in 586, the same thing happened to the southern kingdom through the Babylonians, through Nebuchadnezzar. They too would not repent. And the Lord kicked them out of the land. And then Cyrus the Great defeated Nebuchadnezzar too and freed the Jews from the, the south to go back home. And when they went back home, he sent them with temple artifacts. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, Cyrus the Great sends them back for them to rebuild. And you know who tried to help rebuild? The Samaritans. Ezra 4, Nehemiah 4. And you know who refused them to help build the temple and the city of Jerusalem again? Those two southern tribes who moved back. And so you know what they did in the north? They said, okay, we'll build our own temple on Mount Gerizim, and we'll only embrace the first five books of the Bible. And Josephus tells us that as Jewish pilgrim, pilgrims were making their way to worship at their appointed feast, there were instances in which the Samaritans and the Jews would get to fighting, and there were people killed. And so it makes perfect sense that in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, she says, why are you talking to me? Jews have no dealing with us. It's the reason why when the disciples came back and saw Jesus at the well with this Samaritan woman, that they all marveled, like, why are you talking to her? Because we don't deal with each other. If a Jew wanted to go north, they would cross the Jordan River, go north of Samaria, then cross back. The rabbis would say, if a Samaritan shadow lands on you, you're unclean. The, the, the Jewish rabbis would say that if you eat across the table from a Samaritan, you are more unclean than eating the flesh of swine. You see, this long history of hatred and division and feuding and fighting and alienation, and distance. It's why the Samaritan woman says, you say we need to worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. This is our well that our father Jacob gave to us. She's claiming that, hey, we, we are from Jacob. There's tension. 
and their siblings, their kinfolk, and their sin to go around. The, the, the Samaritans thought the Jews were haughty and arrogant and self-righteous. The Jews in Jerusalem thought they were half-bred, both in race and religion. They were heretics and schismatics. Here's a question. How do you think God felt about it? Look, there was one thing that we could do growing up. Well, several things. But the one thing that we would really get in trouble for, I could come home and I could tell my parents I got to fight in with so-and-so. And my dad may have asked me, did you win, right? But when they found out we got to fighting with each other, you were in trouble. Nothing breaks a mother or father's heart than to see siblings fight and distance and hate and treat other non-relatives better than your own flesh and blood. Look, look, if human parents can feel the gravity of this, how do you think God feels about this distance and this feuding and this fighting? Which is our second point. God has a promise to turn their feuding into fellowship. You ever thought about those words that Jesus seems to say that I think it's easy to just ignore? Blessed are the peacemakers, for you will be called sons of God. If you're giving your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift and go be reconciled. God is a God of peace and care and love and affection and unity. Do you think he takes delight in discord and division? He doesn't. Which is why when you survey the Old Testament, you start to see that God's plan was not to let them continue feuding and fighting. His plan was to bring them into fellowship, which is why I had right read those passages. But in Ezekiel 16, the Lord calls Judah. He says, Judah, you are like your elder sister Samaria, only you're worse. And look at what happened to them. The same will happen to you. But in verse 53, but I will restore their fortunes. He's talking about Samaria. And I will restore your own fortunes. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I atone for all that you've done. Ezekiel 37, it was our call to worship. We love that passage about God being our God in our midst forever. But do you, did you ever stop to read what's before it? What's right before it, notice the wording, for Judah and the people of Israel, I will join them. Right now, they're two sticks, but take and and join them one stick, and they will be one stick in your hand. I will make them one nation, 
And on my mountain, they will have one king over them. They will no longer be two dividing nations. Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. What about Revelation chapter 7? We read that, but what John hears and sees is a a, a list of 144,000. And no, we are not Jehovah's Witnesses who think that only 144,000 will make it into heaven. But did you hear what John says? I see 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar. If you were a Jew reading that, you know what you see? You see restored fellowship. You see that the dividing wall of hostility not between Jew and Greek has come down. No, in Revelation 7, that is a dividing wall between the tribes. It's come down. This is why Jesus says, I must go to Samaria. This is why Jesus says in John 3, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's talking to Nicodemus in Jerusalem. And where does Jesus go in John 4? He goes to Samaria. He says, my gospel is bigger than the Jews in Jerusalem. Humans might forget that this is in the scriptures, but Jesus won't. God longs for feuding families to have fellowship. And the Samaritans might not want to fellowship with the Jews. They might want to build their own temple in their own city to be around their own kind. And the Jews might want to shut them off and keep them at a distance But this is precisely why Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In other words, I'm going to send you and the message of the gospel to the people you can't stand. The people that you're feuding with. That I'm going to be the reconciler of people to me. And as they're reconciled to me, they're reconciled to one another. Turn over to Acts 9.31. I think this is one of the most important verses in this section. And it's a throwaway phrase. It looks like it's a throwaway phrase, but look at it. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Do you see it? That if this were up to humans, this would not be in the Bible. But it's not up to humans. God is big. And God has no promise that will not go kept. He's reconciling. He's healing He's taking these thousand years of pain and hurt and agony, and somehow he's bringing peace. Which leads us into our final point. What is the Father's plan for this restored fellowship? I've showed you the feuding. I've showed you the promise. How does he bring this about? 
How do they get to this point right there in Acts 9, 11, where it says that the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace? How do you get peace when you've been warring for a thousand years? It's through the gospel. It's through what God has done in and through his only son. You get a foretaste of it in John 4 when Jesus goes to Samaria and he, this, this woman at the well is converted and he tells the disciples, I'm, the, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, pray for the Lord of the harvest. I'm going to send you in later to labor for that which you did. You're going to reap for that which you did not sow. And I think that's what's happening in the passage. Jesus has gone in there in Samaria and now Philip goes into Samaria and the, and the apostles, they get to go in there at the end and reap for food, I mean, reap for seed that they didn't themselves sow. So it's almost like this passage is fulfilling John chapter 4. So how did God do it? Through persecution. Satan intended persecution to shut the saints up, to keep them afraid and quiet and local and compliant. Yet the opposite happens. Persecution makes them scatter. And as they scatter, they preach the word. And that word for scatter, it comes from two different Greek words. And one of the words it comes from is seed. So it's to throw seed out. That seed might be planted wherever it lands and bear fruit. And so the image here is of persecution from the human side. It looks final. It looks fatal. But from the divine side, the persecution is a throwing out of seeds where God's servants go. And they plant themselves in places like Samaria. And they preach the gospel and believe the gospel. And guess what happens? Conversions break out. And that's what happens here. The father sends an obedient, spirit-filled Christian who will not listen to what the Jews say about the Samaritans. He does, knock on the, he does not knock on the Samaritans' door. Are you ready for me? He does not listen to the rhetoric of the rabbis. He does not listen to what's being published in newspapers and on the news. He is marching by the beat of a different drum, the drum, the words of Jesus, who says, go to your enemies and preach. And I know it's unpopular, but go. He went there and planted himself there and pointed them to the Savior their hearts longed for. He didn't go there just to be planted, but he went there to preach. It says over and over again that he preached and he proclaimed to them the Christ. He preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Philip did not restore fellowship. Philip did not bring joy. Philip did not bring peace. This is what God the Father is doing through the ministry of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit to change hearts and to give faith. Peter, I mean, Philip preaches. I'd love to hear how he contextualized his message to Samaritans who had been alienated, who only embraced the first five books of the Bible. Last week, I told you Stephen didn't just preach a canned sermon. He preached in a way around the needs of the, the audience there. So I think there's a theme going on here. 
that this is almost like an exodus theme for the Samaritans. Here's what I mean. Did you notice the showdown in the passage? Notice what it says about this Simon guy. He's the magician. And we don't really know if he's a real believer or not. I can let, you can kind of read up on that. Some people say he's not. Some people say he, he's, he is. I, I don't know. It just kind of ends where he says, pray for me that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And we don't know how that fared out. Peter says, you're trying to buy the Holy Spirit. He says, you're full of the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. It could be that Peter is saying you will have no ministry where you will have the power of signs because of your background. That gift won't be given to you. Peter could be saying, brother man, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? We don't know about this Simon guy. But here's what we do know. He's powerful. He has black magic. He's been given power by Satan to amaze and look at what it says. The, the, he has practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria. And he said that he was somebody great. And they all paid attention from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time. He amazed them with his magic. And so what you get is a showdown. You get this Simon guy who's doing magic, who has a sway of the whole city, and all of a sudden, Philip shows up, and did you notice what Philip says? Philip came preaching the good news about the kingdom and about Jesus, but they listened to him because of his preaching, and notice what the text says in verse 6, when they heard him and saw the signs he did. So this is showdown language. This is Simon the magician who's doing signs and amazing, and this is Philip who comes into town, who's preaching, and the Lord by the Spirit gives Philip this power to do signs. And all of a sudden, the people who were uh, under allegiance to this magician are now shifting allegiance over here. There's this battle between this magician and this servant of the Lord. Where else have you seen that in the Bible? In Exodus. You remember Exodus 7 through 9? When the Lord sends Moses and Aaron to free Israel and they're under the bondage of Pharaoh and Moses goes in with the staff and that staff throws down and it turns into a snake and Pharaoh's magicians do the same except Yahweh's snake eats their snake. And then Moses goes in and gives them the plague of frogs and then Pharaoh's magicians do frogs and then Yahweh's, uh, his representatives go in and they do gnats and his magicians can't do gnats. They do boils and his magicians can't do boils and all of a sudden you get to the crescendo when God the Father tells Moses, tell them to put the blood of a lamb on a door because I'm wrecking shop tonight. And let me see if his magicians can do that. And that night, those who trusted and obeyed, the angel of death passed over. And for those who didn't, they died. Their firstborn son. And you know what Pharaoh magician said to Pharaoh? We can't do that. That's the finger of God. God went in 
and he delivered them from under the tyranny of sin and darkness and he brought them out. This is what I think is happening. There's a theme here. You Samaritans are under the sway of this man who calls himself great. But I'm here to introduce you to the one who is great. This man can amaze you, but I'm here to save you. And I'm here to bring you from under the darkness. And that is why there's joy. These Samaritans see They see, I think, the greater Moses who has come. They see this greater Moses that they need. They see the blood of the lamb that they need. And it's not an animal. It's a person. It's the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. They're talking about the name of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus. And they believe and are baptized. There is nothing more unifying to people who are warring than to be baptized into the name of Jesus to bow the knee to Jesus, to find common relationship at the foot of the cross based on our common need of Jesus. And God in his goodness, the the apostles hear that the revival has broken out and so they come up and it's not just any two apostles. We're told that it's Peter and John. Peter is the leader. Why John? Because this is the same John and Luke who wanted fire to rain down on Samaritans. And it's as if God the Father says, nope, you go check this out. You're going to go and lay hands on him, and I'm going to rain the Holy Spirit on him, not to consume them, but to fill them. You give them the right hand of fellowship, and you tell the world that these Samaritans that you've been feuding with for a thousand years, they are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do you see how big God is? He turns this feuding into fellowship left to ourselves. It never happens. But nothing is impossible for him. And he does it through the ministry of his son. What does this have to do with us this morning? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you are probably like the Samaritans. You're blinded in unbelief and you're following the course of this world and you're looking for salvation in all the wrong places. And God says, come. To me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you don't know Jesus, this passage says turn to him. In faith, he's ready to heal, ready to forgive. And if you name the name of Jesus, what are the most polarizing things you think of in the church right now?
I'm here to tell you that feuding can turn into beautiful fellowship when we meet at the cross, when we see our own need for a Savior, and we experience His grace and His mercy and His loving kindness, when we hold loosely to the things of this world and tightly to the cross of Christ, that our fellow image bearers who name the name of Jesus, that as we both do this same dance, fellowship happens. There is no chasm too big that God can't fix. There is no feuding that God can't turn into beautiful fellowship. He'll do it through Jesus. You've heard us use language about the church gathered, us being here, but we've also used language about the church being scattered. And that's when you leave this place, the Lord implants you in places. He implants you in families. He implants you in communities. He implants you in cities. He implants you wherever you work. He implants you. And do you know why he implants you there? To testify to his goodness. R.C. Sproul says, I saw a picture of a church, of people leaving church, and they were carrying their Bibles and smiling. And as I looked at those men and women and children, I thought, there goes the church. The building will stay and it will be referred to as a church, but those bricks can't preach and those pews can't witness. Only people can do that. Where the people of God are, there is the church under the lordship of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. That's a beautiful reminder that pews don't preach and buildings don't witness. When we leave here, God scatters us out to be salt and light, admonishing men and women and children to be reconciled to God. And you may not have the gifts that Philip has to raise the lame and give sight to the blind, but you do have spiritual gifts to be used in the service of your king. May God make us a people that won't sit on gifts, that won't waste our talents, that won't waste what he has given to us. May we, like Philip, like Christ, steward these things in word and in deed and do our part in coming alongside of Jesus to be ambassadors and peacemakers. Let's pray. Father, I uh, praise you for your word and, and pray that we would uh, be doers, not only hearers. Father, I pray for any feuding or polarization in our church. I pray for a spirit of humility and tenderness. I pray for a big God and a big cross and a big Jesus that empowers and enables those of us who are different to have unity around what matters the most, our Lord. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.